When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. March is Women's History Month, and to commemorate this iconic month, we are revisiting an interview with the author of Resilience on Parade short stories from the suffragists and women's battle for the vote, Jane Hampton Cook. Jane came on the podcast to celebrate 100 years of the women's suffrage movement. And, you know, this historic period in time is just a remarkable display of freedom, liberty and activism. So to my ladies, happy Women's History Month. What is women's suffrage? How did women ultimately win the right to vote? And what can this movement teach us about our country present day? We'll answer all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. August 18th, big day for the ladies. This marks the 100-year anniversary of women being granted the right to vote in the United States. There is so much power in the right to vote. We know that. Every single American can have a say in who runs our country. I mean, what a privilege. That's the beauty of democracy. But women didn't always have that privilege. In 1776, in a letter dated for March 31st, Abigail Adams wrote to her husband, John, who, of course, participated in the Continental Congress. In that letter, Abigail wrote, quote, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them. She continued, do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Later on in 1848 at the Seneca Falls Convention, a declaration was written which read, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. Drop the mic. Since our country's beginning, and I'm sure even before then, women had to ask to be granted their independence and freedom. And for a long time in our nation's history, a major barrier to women's freedoms was the ability to vote and own land. But on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment was officially incorporated into the Constitution. This amendment prohibited denying the right to vote to a U.S. citizen based on gender. It's worth noting, however, that although this amendment and its legacy is a celebrated milestone in our country, it would be decades before many minority women, women of color, and immigrant women were able to cast their votes in American elections. So with that in mind, I'm joined on the podcast today by Jane Hampton Cook. She's the author of the new book, Resilience on Parade, Short Stories of Suffragists and Women's Battle for the Vote. She is a presidential historian, the author of 10 books, and was the first female White House web architect for President George W. Bush. Jane, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. I mean, what an exciting topic that you're joining us for. This is great. Yes, it's very special in 2020 um, to talk about this. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm very excited. Definitely. And congratulations, by the way, on your new book. I mean, this is perfect timing with the 100 year anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment. So well done. 
Thank you. And we, we opted for the title Resilience on Parade because everybody needs resilience right now with COVID. Mm. And so we just felt like these women showed resilience throughout their lives. So it was just a natural word, you know, to focus on. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you're obviously extremely knowledgeable on this topic. Where did your passion for women's suffrage come from? Well, you know, I've done a lot of reading and history, writing about different historical books. And just whenever there's an anniversary, I think it's a great time to dive into that time period in history mm-hmm. to get that story. And so, and I, I did some consulting work with the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission, and I saw a lot of books out there. And I thought, you know, I want to write something that's very story driven because I think people respond to, to individual stories. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I wanted to do is to talk about specific people who, you know, really made a contribution to women winning the right to vote. Yes. So let's do that. Let's start off in the beginning. Abigail Adams, she famously wrote at the start of our new country to her husband in a letter in 1776. And I I love this quote. She said, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. I mean, that is a power woman, Jane, right there. She she was. Yes. Yeah. Can you just discuss uh, the Adams impact on women's suffrage and what women's suffrage was like in our colonial and early American era? Sure. Well, you know, Abigail and John Adams had this intellectual relationship. He longed to watch her think and she freely gave him her opinion. So standing up for women and saying, hey, you know, let's think about, you know, better protecting women as we start this new country. And, you know, some back then um, only landowners could vote. And though Adams, you know, teasingly replied to his wife, he actually had a pretty serious debate about the issue of who should vote. And, um, it was it was just one of those things where it was kind of mind blowing to him because only about 16% of the population could vote in 1776 landowners and there were a lot of men that, that did not own land and who could not vote so it was a much different scenario than i think we might think mm. yeah he longed to watch her think that's what you need in a partner I mean, what a keeper. (laughs) I love that. So what did it look like for women then before they were able to vote? And what would you say was the biggest thing preventing women from getting that right? Well, I think the... For, you know, for women, there were some states like New Jersey who allowed women landowners to vote for 30 years from 1776 to 1807 or so. Um, so some women did vote. They all considered themselves U.S. citizens. Um, but I think what happened is that as more and more non-landowners could vote, the word male was inserted into voting laws in different states. And so it was really more kind of how things unfolded in the first few decades of our country that that really ended up discriminating against women directly mm. because the word male and female was not in the constitution originally. So it, right. it really was those state and local laws. And as more women got an education by the 1840s, they were ready to organize and do something more um, proactive about women getting the right to vote. Okay. So you mentioned the 1840s. So then what's next? What's the next major step for women in our country's history? And how does the first industrial revolution end up impacting women's suffrage? So by the 1840s, you know, women do have a much better education, women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, Susan B. Anthony, and they saw a lot of these laws that discriminated against women. I mean, women could not own land in New York, but they could in New Jersey. Um, Divorce laws really 
discriminated against women. They couldn't keep their children in a divorce. And so they Mm. said, you know what? We need to change these laws. Um, And they issued the Declaration of Sentiments in 1848 in Seneca Falls. And it took the Declaration of Independence and it added the word female. All men and women are created equal. And that was to counter those state laws. And they had a lot of demands and grievances, but the big one was women having the right to vote. And um, that is what, that was the vision of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. If women could have the right to vote, then all of these other issues could be addressed through the voting booth by keeping legislators accountable. So she really saw it as the fulcrum through which everything else flowed was, was that right to vote. Right. Uh, Okay. So then by the 1860s, we fast forward, our country is deep in the throes of the Civil War, right? So can you tell me more about the relationship between the abolitionist movement and women's suffrage? Yes. So women's suffrage and the abolitionist movement were simultaneous. So you had women holding conventions for women's rights in the 1850s up to the Civil War. And most of those women were abolitionists. And then when the Civil War started, they were asked to put aside the women's right to vote issue and just focus solely on abolition. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton Mm. and Susan B. Anthony gathered 400,000 signatures calling for the abolishment of slavery. And they delivered those signatures to Congress to just 400,000, 400,000. How did they do that? Is that snail mail or what? Yeah, they had, you know, they, they went to post offices um, in, in all the counties in, you know, New York and New Jersey and places like that. And that's how they gathered those signatures because they wanted to show president Lincoln and Congress that there was a demand from the people. I mean, we didn't have polls mm-hmm. back then. You right. know, we weren't poll testing everything. So that was their way was a petition drive and writing wow. their friends in other states. But so that's a massive amount of signatures. Yeah. And yeah. And so um, so they were really connected with the abolitionist movement. But after the Civil War, you know, the there just wasn't enough momentum to give women the right to vote and to give freed slaves the right to vote. So a lot of members of Congress who had supported the women before changed their minds. And so the 14th and 15th Amendment um, gave freed black males the right to vote and it actually inserted the word male into the constitution for the first time. So by doing that, it it obviously eliminated women from voting in the constitution. So that made it tremendously more difficult to give women the right to vote. And so it it really was going to require a constitutional amendment. And that's what Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and many of the other suffragists realized is, okay, we have to be flexible. We have to change our tactics. And so they tried many different tactics after the civil war. And, but a lot of it was, based on trying to get Congress to pass an amendment giving women in all states the right to vote. Yeah. So then where does Sojourner Truth come in? Because that's someone who I think about, you know, June 19th, 1865, slaves are free across the United States. So then where does she come in and how did newly freed persons in the United States then add to our country's journey with women's suffrage? So, you know, Sojourner Truth is one of my favorites, and um, I love her story because it's a story of perseverance. She was a slave born into slavery in the, like, I think 1797, very late in that century, became a free person. And then her, she, she gave her story to an abolitionist who published her story as a narrative, and that was used to help 
convince people to oppose slavery. And then she used her voice to go to, you know, anti-slavery conventions, but she also spoke at women's suffrage conventions. And one of the newspaper articles covering her speech reprinted it, but said, you really had to hear it. It's, it's the emotion in her voice. It's the impact of her body language that's just so powerful. So in other words, they were really longing for TV back in the 1850s and 60s because yeah. they recognized the printed word alone couldn't convey the emotion that she really brought to the issue of women, you know, women's right to vote. And yeah, so- and that's something you don't really hear about. I mean, her emotion, and because we're reading it in history books, so you obviously can't hear her. And right. that's really interesting to learn. Yeah. Think about. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's that people recognized, you know, the power of the emotion of someone's speech. Mm-hmm. And of course she was disenfranchised um, because she was not a black male getting the right to vote in the 14th and 15th amendments. So she was disenfranchised, but she did meet Abraham Lincoln six months before he died in the white house. And they, um, she wanted to meet the great emancipator and uh, had the opportunity to do that. And so I think that says a lot about both her and Abraham Lincoln. Definitely. How Do you know how that meeting went? Uh, it went two? very well. He signed a book of hers. Um, he showed her a book that the uh, Black people of Baltimore had given him. It was a very special Bible to him. He showed that to her. And they, they had a really nice exchange. And then she went from there to Michigan, to start a new town for freed slaves. So she really did devote her life to, um, you know, civil rights and activist causes. That's really awesome to hear. So you mentioned Sojourner Truth, and then also um, before Susan B. Anthony, obviously she was a huge player in this quest for women's rights. What was something that, any fun stories that you have of her and what she did to impact change? Well, so Susan B. Anthony was often the voice. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton would write a lot of the speeches. They'd collaborate. And then she was kind of the one who delivered the thunderbolt is how they said it in her speeches. But she also lobbied Congress. Um, And some of the newspaper articles covering her going to the Capitol uh, are kind of kind of funny. They they sort of. you can see how they didn't take her as seriously as we do in retrospect. Um, they didn't have as big a picture view, but they, you know, they teased that she was the mother of a senator, and of course she wasn't. But they did cover the issue and and the thought of what would happen if women won the right to vote. So you can see through that newspaper coverage how much of an uphill battle they had. And mm-hmm. one of the things of Susan B. Anthony that I think is interesting is that she was a teacher and she realized that men teachers were making three times as much as she was. And that's actually what motivated her to become a suffragist because she saw that inequality in the really? workplace. Yeah. And uh, that, so that it was, was that, it was that before, that was her passion before the right to vote. Exactly. She was a teacher. Oh, and then she devoted that. her the rest of her life to suffrage and to abolition. But she, um, you know, she, what, what I think is so amazing about the resilience, especially of that generation, is that they did not quit. They'd have a major setback and they, then they'd keep going. And, um, Susan B. Anthony got so frustrated that in 1872, she just voted. She just decided, I'm just going to go do this. She knows yes, girl. Yes, I'm just going to go vote. She was arrested, put on trial, 
and she lost her case. But she went to all of the post offices in, in the county where she was being tried and gave speeches before her trial so she could get the jury to understand her side. Good um, for her. And then the judge moved it to another county. So she did the same thing. She went to the post office. <laughs> so she was really a firebrand, but she was committed to, you know, the root belief that I'm a U.S. citizen. Yeah. I should have the right to vote. I need to hold my legislators accountable. Um, and that's why the amendment was named for her. The 19th Amendment is named for Susan B. Anthony because mm-hmm. she never gave up to her dying day. They would write the president of the United States letters. Um, they would they would write their congressmen. They would bring petitions. I mean, they really they really put it all out there um, to, and it was the next generation of women that actually sealed the deal right. um, that they started. That is such a powerful story about Susan B. Anthony. And the woman spent a lot of time at the post office too. So she had anybody parading for, it's probably the people at the post office are like, get this girl the right to vote. She has been here so many times, <laughs> that's but right. that, that's great. It's so cool to hear that. And to, to do that at that time had to have been such a terrifying thing. And she did it with, with what looks like without any fear, I should say. All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So you said that next generation of women following the Civil War were now in the early 1900s. So when I think of women's suffrage, Jane, this is really the part of the movement that I can picture. Women in these long dresses, these fantastic hats, marching, parading, you know, the signs, the throngs of women, they're fighting for something very important, right? So what can you tell me about this era of the movement? So this era of the movement decided we have to change our tactics. We have to get creative. And in my book, Resilience on Parade, I call it creative courage because they said, okay, let's host a parade. And so 5,000 women from around the United States came to Washington, D.C. the day before President Wilson's first inauguration and they held a big parade. And it was like a documentary. They had um, scenes of women and how they progressed and the different roles that women had at that time. They were, you know, laborers in factories. They were mothers. They were, you know, some of them were college graduates. Some of them were professionals like doctors. They just wanted to show America, here is woman. Here's what she does for our country She needs the right to vote. She needs a constitutional amendment. And so they used parades as a way to, you know, really bring this issue to light. And the newspapers covered it across the country. Um, These these suffrage parades, they had them in New York and other places. So it was a good tactic for them um, to hold these parades. Yeah, Um, I, I love what you said about that, too. It's, you know, what they did was they showed that they uh, deserved the right to vote, not by tearing other people down. They did it by saying, look, we are capable and this is what we can do and this is what we have done for you. So it's such a good approach to getting new rights for them. Um, So it's it's really awesome. I I love that. And uh, so by 1914, then our country is facing the first world war. So how did that affect the movement? So that's really interesting. Um, Some suffragists, such as Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, said to themselves, we are not going to let a war derail our effort. Um, They knew that the suffragists in the Civil War had put aside keeping the issue alive and in front of people. And they said, we're not going to do that. And so um, 
they were getting fr- they tried to school President Wilson. They met with him several times. <laughs> he wanted to be educated on the issue, but ultimately he just didn't have the political courage to go to his party on Capitol Hill and say, hey, you need to pass this amendment. And the Democratic Party controlled the House and the Senate and the presidency. So it was really one party rule in Washington. And so they really were frustrated with Wilson. And they decided that they were going to have silent sentinel uh, protest in front of the White House. They weren't chanting. They were just holding signs, you know, anywhere from two women to a dozen. Every day they would hold different signs to keep the issue alive. And during World War One, when it started, they continued um, holding those signs instead of, you know, giving up. And I think one of their most salient arguments during World War One uh, is that they they said, you know, you're drafting America's sons and their, their mothers do not have the right to vote. Oh. And they deserve the right to vote because the government is drafting or you know, the government is drafting their sons to to be part of World War One, and I think that was a really powerful argument. You would see newspapers where there'd be these big, bold headlines about the draft, and then you'd have an article about the Silent Sentinels protesting in front of the White House. Respectfully, it was very quiet, but that that was a big part of their argument. And then when they started getting sent to jail, that's when things changed and got yeah. worse for a while, and then got better. What a fascinating point. Yeah, that, that is, that's really smart to take that approach. And something I think about Jane too is maybe this is a very 2020 thing for me to say, but back in the day, they didn't have social media. Right now we see different movements happening because they're organized via the internet, Instagram, Twitter, whatever it may be. And at the time you had these women silently protesting, like you mentioned, without the force of social media. So how was it just through newspapers, whisperings? How did that work? Well, they had um, organizations, associations of suffragists. So they had a big mailing list, um, but it was the media. I, I was really stunned. I was reading how the night before uh, on June, January 9th, 1917, they changed their strategy to do the silent Sentinel protest. And then I looked through my historical newspaper database in Alaska, the Alaska newspaper had the news that they were going to start these protests before they actually started the next day because they had the savvy to call the Associated Press and say, hey, we're going to change our tactics. This is what we're going to do at 10 in the morning tomorrow. And it was all over the country. So they really knew how to use the media. They knew how to communicate with, you know, the, the Associated Press and and other organizations to get their message out. So that was kind of their social media was was the press. Yeah, that is incredibly impressive, I must say. So, okay, finally, the the 19th Amendment, you know, yes, women can vote. Obviously, this is not a simple answer, but how do you think it happens? Like, what was the, the last straw? Well, the last emotional straw was when the women who were at the White House holding these signs were put into jail. And they um, went for various sentences, various lengths of time, but they, there was something called the Night of Terror, in November 1917, where the women were uh, abused, they were hit, they, they mm-hmm. were thrown into dark cells, they, they, their food was terrible. It was, it was a terrible situation. And when the media reported on the conditions, that's when Woodrow Wilson realized, I don't want someone to die on me. And so he put pressure on Congress. He finally gave speeches and started joining the movement 
I, I wouldn't go that far. He's finally started giving speeches and putting some political pressure on Capitol Hill. And the women also, there were some states that did have the right to vote for women, some in the West. And so those women voted out any member of Congress who did not support the amendment. So by the time you get to 1918, the new crop of congressmen, Wilson's pressure, the women's protest and organization, you have enough members of Congress who passed the 19th Amendment. Mm. Then it goes to the states and they have to ratify it. And it all came down to one state. It all came down to Tennessee and it all came down to one legislator who chose to remember a lady. Really? Yes. That, so, th- so and then, then what happened from there then? So, you know, we started with Abigail Adams remembering the ladies, calling on her husband to do so. Well, Harry T. Byrne was on record as being opposed to the amendment. And um, but he he, the morning of the vote, he got a letter from his mother and she knew he was he was only in his 20s. She knew he was under a lot of political pressure from his political mentor who was against the amendment for him to vote against it, too. So she encouraged him to vote for the amendment. So he, he and he's wearing a red rose when he goes into vote. If you were wore a red rose, you were against it. If you wore yellow, you were for it. And on the floor, there was a procedural vote and it was tied. So he realized that they needed his vote if, if women were going to get the right to vote. His vote was needed. So he changed his vote. Oh, my gosh. And he. And, and everyone was stunned because they all had him down as a no. But he realized he wanted his mother to have the right to vote. Oh. She was in a farm. He, she was, he, he, so he literally remembered her. And that's what he told the newspapers, you know, the next day about why he changed his vote. He remembered a lady, his mother. And that's how personal, you know, it came down to people. And, and so Tennessee on August 18, 1920, Harry T. Byrne made history by remembering his mother and voting for the 19th Amendment. And that's how it became ratified in law. I have the goosebumps. That is so awesome. And coming from a sports background, I think of like, you know, it's it's game point. There's three seconds left on the clock. You don't think they're going to make the shot. And then he nails a three pointer and boom, we get the the right to vote. That is so awesome. And moms know best. They really do. They do. Good for his mom. Yeah. So then we talked about everything that led up to the women getting the right to vote. How would you say our society shifted after they got that right? Well, you know, we the the. 1920 presidential election was the first election and women voted for um, Harding, who became president, President Harding. And then I think, you know, from there, you you do have um some women, you know, organizing and continuing to support, you know, certain other amendments. And then you had others who you just kind of, I think the women sort of, there is a women's vote, but women are not monolithic, right? They all, they think differently. They vote differently on different, different issues or important to different women. And so I think it's just, we've just become a part of the voting culture and it's a very, you know, special thing. What I think is great is how many women are running for Congress this year. I know yes. on the, you know, the Republicans, I think, have 227 women running. That's the most they've ever had. There are more than 80 members of Congress on the Democratic side who are women. Um, and so we just see how much women today are involved in in not just voting, but they're running for office. Definitely. It's, mu- it's very necessary. Yeah, it very is. nice. And that's all because that of that 19th Amendment kickstarting 
you know, a hundred years of history to bring us to this point where women are just a very vital part of our government. Yeah, I think you might have just answered my last question, but uh, putting you on the spot a little bit here, what's the most important thing that our listeners should know about women's suffrage? I think just that there were many thousands of Americans, male and female, who sacrificed for women's right to vote and that it is a story of resilience and it's a story that we can all be proud of that we got there it may have taken us too long in a lot of ways it did but we got there and that we have a a special legacy today where you know women are do so many different things in our society and a lot of that has to do with winning the right to vote 100 years ago Definitely. Yeah. Well, Jane, thank you so much. It it was such a pleasure talking to you. And this is something that we don't think much about today, or at least I don't. The right to vote, that's just because women who came before us um, really put in the work so that we could earn that right. And now you're carrying on their legacy in your writings and by coming on this podcast. So it truly was an honor and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, if you missed anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways from my conversation with Jane Hampton Cook on the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. Number one, Jane reminds listeners that although Abigail Adams did ask John to, quote, remember the ladies, the larger thing to remember about voting rights when our country began is that only landowners could vote in the United States. Because of this, only 16% of the population could vote at the start of our country. Number two, Jane notes that this year we're seeing record numbers of Republican women running for public office. In the 2020 election, we're going to see more Republican women running for office than ever before. Not only that, back in 2018, we saw record public office seats by women as well, with Democratic women accounting for 38 percent of all House Democrats and 36 percent of Senate Democrats, according to the Pew Research Center. All of these political feats were made possible by the work of those women who led the women's suffrage movement. And number three, Jane says it's important to remember that there were, quote, many thousands of Americans who sacrificed for the right for women to vote. She says that although it may feel like it took too long for us to get there, we should still celebrate this great accomplishment as a nation. Jane, thanks so much again for joining me for this conversation. I'm so happy we got to do this episode in celebration of the Women's Suffrage Centennial. It is such an important topic and you are an amazing voice for it. So we really appreciate you coming on. And thank you so much also for the awesome work you did on this topic as you wrote your book. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com and don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.